There is no time to sleep. The planet needs saving. Fascism and political violence increases. Racial injustice rages. We need to wake up and get busy being rational to save the planet, save democracy. There is no room for error. We need truth and clear thinking. Or so they say. We, the International Congress for Infrathene Studies, reject that this precarious moment calls for more clarity, more wakefulness. We embrace obscurity, murkiness, ambivalence, chance, erotics. We aspire to malpractice theology. We eschew definitions of theology other than what we put into practice. Like art after Marcel Duchamp, anything can be theology. A bicycle wheel on a stool or a urinal. Anyone can practice it. A stream, a worm, a horse, a mole. We advocate a theology that gets it wrong. A theology that sleeps. A theology that plays. A theology of chance. Unlike Einstein's our god plays dice. She uses tarot cards. She attends seances. We advocate a suspended theology clasped between double claws of contradiction in the form of quotation marks that are also double hooks from which the castle theology is hung. Two-pronged horns sprouting from the unheralded demon's head of theology. Double eye stalks protruding from the mucus-secreting mollusk of a slippery theology. Metonymic tendrils of a star-nosed mole issuing from a sniffing, rooting, grubbing, delving, burrowing theology. A theology without being, a theology without theology. Almost nothing, in other words, infrathin theology. Or theology as infra-thing, infra-thingy, a slip of a thing, a slip beneath a thing, the ghost of theology, what's left in the space where theology used to be. International Congress for Infrathin Studies announces itself as a permanently incomplete experiment, an infinite conversation. It is the antithesis of duty, the enemy of utility. Its function is to malfunction, a malpraxis against the rationalism that prevails in academic theological discourse. The International Congress for Infrathin Studies practices surrealist theology as the impassioned instantiation of the free play of thought 
in previously neglected associations. To the degree that the Congress of Interest in Studies is a dream, it is a dream of the impossible. It works alongside, but against academic theology as its enemy from within, as the seducer who arrives after dark and enters through the back door. Why? Because the arch upon which our civilization is built is rotten. The civilization that built us, that gave some of us the place of a woman, a no man, a no God man, along with the other species and colors, the civilization that built its parasitic being on the lower half of the chain of being is archaic and needs convulsion. Its parasitic existence is devouring the planet and non-surrealist theology and its God-man are in on it. The very grammar of human language is in on it. The great oneness that gave the right to ownership of the earth forever and ever to white men is in on it. Right there, upheld by the oneness of theology. It's in language's nature to turn multiplicity into singularity, to turn this thing and that thing and this other thing and that thing over there into one and the same thing, woman, worm. It's how knowledge is formed. Human languages swallow becoming and poop out being. That is why we, the International Congress for Infrathin Studies, are reconstructing things like mad dancing at the far end of the discourse, at the far end of making sense. We're not talking a return to the fine arts prison that swallowed some surrealist art in the 1900s. With Suzanne Césaire, we claim that surrealism is about us. We who are here today. We are surrealist theology's living presence, ardent and revolutionary. We are full, full of love, hopes, desires, and dreams, especially dreams, dreams that undermine our best ideas. We work to build recklessly playful subterranean constructions that horizontally grow and tunnel below the plane of established discourse underneath the stock floor of bourgeois intellectual exchange. These constructions of ours are not grand temples that represent a supreme deity or even a triumphal humanism. They are earthly and horizontal constructions that represent nothing because below the surface, underground, there's only change and event flows, rupture and transitions, love, hope, and desire. The constructive work refers to nothing other than the work the affirmational work of building together a thing that will surely collapse, that has perhaps already collapsed. This collective and affirmational work is the work of infrathin artwork, infrathin congress work. 
What's up, everyone? Welcome to War Machine, a podcast community for seizing the means of theological production. What you just heard was the manifesto of the International Congress for Infrathin Studies. I recently spoke with that group's founding members, Petra Carlson, Dan Seidel, Brent Everett Dickerson, and Jeremy Biles. I think everyone probably knows Petra by now. Um, But you'll hear from everyone, and uh, be sure to link to their respective sites or links or whatever I can find on them that that seems relevant. Uh, Before we get into the conversation, uh, just a couple disclaimers, uh, things you should know. The format here is loosely based on the WWE Royal Rumble, which I'm not really a fan fan of or anything. I just uh, grew up with that stuff and seemed like a good format. It also turns out being a kind of exquisite corpse. If you're wondering what the hell an exquisite corpse is, you'll hear more about that later on in the talk. Uh, But for now, it's essentially a surrealist method whereby an artifact is produced by sharing only a small part of a text or or some other kind of work, I suppose. Uh, And then the next person has to incorporate that into whatever they come up with. I don't know, that might not be the best description, but it's it's probably enough to get us going here. And I should mention that the ICS manifesto you just heard was produced using the exquisite corpse method. I think it came out pretty good. Also, for whatever reason, I neglected to select the right microphone input. So you'll hear it, my audio sounds kind of shitty. Uh, sorry about that. I think that's all I want to say. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And here is the International Congress for Infrathin Studies. Peace. Good to see you, as always. Good to see you. So yeah, I'm glad we were able to get this uh, together on short short notice. I've been wanting to talk to the Infrathin gang for for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've been wanting to talk to you. I know you all have interesting and austere titles. What what is your title? Uh, I am the dean of surrealist theology, uh, and the head of the Stockholm Bureau of the International Congress for Infrathin Studies. That is a fantastic title. Thank you. Um, yeah, because I want to make sure that we give everyone proper credit as they yeah. <laughs> as they come in. So I guess to start, you know, people who are familiar with you uh, and your work will know that 
art, particular avant-garde art, is a, a theme that's important for your work. You wrote that book, Avant-Garde, and um, was it Material Radical Theology? Am I getting the title? Right? Radical Material Theology. It has the longest title ever. It's not. There's definitely worse ones out there. I want to ask you about the Infrathin Congress in a, in a sort of general sense, kind of what it's all about. But So maybe you can say something about that, but also kind of connect that to your own interests and you know, work in the theological space. Yeah, for me as a theologian, also as a like, climate activist, I just felt this growing need to, I guess, like dance at the far end of the discourse, the current discourse, just to see if is there anything out there? Is there other different ways of living and thinking and believing than the ones that we have gotten used to and that seem to take us to a place where like the planet is, is ruined? When I dug into avant-garde art, I found these amazing thinkers that also thought not only with theories and, and not with philosophy primarily, nor with theology, but with their hands, but that still did it in such a way that they actually encountered new ways of understanding reality. So that like beginning in in what you do so that that can kind of help you to leave the space of either like man or God that we're so used to, like either you're stuck in your own rationality or you're stuck in an idea of what you should believe in. But there's a kind of third that appears in, in the art world with the avant-garde and then with the surrealist thinkers that actually develop methods for thinking and doing stuff differently. And those methods then include surprising yourself and using chance and putting yourself in situations that are uncomfortable because you don't know where they will lead. It's not like your rationality is not in control anymore, <laughs> nor a kind of a Bible study guide, but you're just kind of thrown out there. Yeah. And, and to me, it feels as if, well, that's where we need to be these days, <laughs> kind of explore new ground. And theology has been, even the radical theology I find has been too stuck in a kind of rational way of arguing and reasoning. And so that's why I want to go for a surrealist theology instead. Yeah, I mean, you're cutting up surrealist theology as a kind of irrational theology or one that's at least grounded, like some air quotes, grounded in a kind of practice. In my limited experience with the Infrathin group, I've popped in a couple of times. There's a real emphasis on praxis. And there's a kind of, I'm not sure this is the right way to say it, but it's kind of coming at theology from a, a mode of artistic production, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, which is really also a, a, an understanding of theology beyond representation, which I've been dealing with as in a performative theology. Theology is, is what we create together, and it's not necessarily what one brilliant mind creates in a book. And that's where the infrathin play and the seminars that we have we we create knowledge together and we do that explicitly. So it's not about uh, listening to one mind that has a kind of reason from A to B to C, but it's setting a space where ideas can come together so that the sum of us all is wiser than, than our singularities. And also I find that it's a way of expressing how I think knowledge kind of works and it's produced in the world it's not like you can ever control where your ideas go but they always end up creating something beyond your control and now we welcome in the first artist of the international congress for infrathin studies 
Brent Everett Dickinson. Are you there, Brent? I sure am. All right, welcome. Thanks. So, Fletcher and I were just discussing some uh, some generalities, I guess you could say, uh, about a surrealist theology, what it looks like in practice. But what do you want to say about the International Congress for Infrathin Studies? It's quite a mouthful. I'm sorry you can come up with a better name, frankly. Yeah, no, <laughs> apologize. We could just put your mouth through that. Um, um, I mean, I I like how we're doing this because I didn't hear what Petra had to say about this. So um, there's a way that this is very exquisite corpse-like. So yeah, we the project really developed as a way of thinking in new ways, but but not only thinking in new ways, but working in new ways, like subjecting our thoughts to processes that are outside of our control, that are truly collaborative, that through these experimental means it might produce novel approaches and ways of thinking that are beyond my own capacity for creative thinking, right? I mean, that, that was definitely a, a thing that all surrealists utilizing various techniques have been interested in. So it was, it was one of the things that we were, that was quite core to our thinking as we began this and as we've found our way through various projects and pieces that we've done so far. Yeah, it seems like there's not only an interest in, I mean, you you referenced a kind of knowledge production, and we can say more about that, what that looks like, or what that means, but but also trying to enact a kind of transformation of some kind. Do you want to say something about who you are, uh, apart from the Infrathin Congress and like what your work kind of centers on and how the work that you've been doing with the Infrathin Congress has impacted the work that you do? Yeah, yeah. My my entire training is in visual art, so I'm a professor of art. My practice has shifted over the last uh, twenty or thirty years from a more material based process or practice to a very kind of multidisciplinary practice that's quite immaterial these days. So I, I do a lot of web intervention. I do a lot of writing and performance and video. Uh, a lot of that has been driven by my leftist politics toward a kind of decommodification of my practice, but also the ways that digital media has utter flexibility and scratches all my itches. Like I'm able to manipulate sound and add text and content, like narrative in in ways that, um, I don't know, my paintings 20 years ago, I had difficulty doing so. So that's my background. My background is not in philosophy or theology uh, however, as a novice, I've been I, like, it's always been a thing that has been greatly influential to my practice. And so as a kind of a self-taught, unlicensed philosopher, theologian, yeah, it's been it's been a, a thing that's caused my work to find itself in lots of different strange places, merging theology and, and art and doing so in a way that causes both to be quite unsettled, right? The art aspect of my ideas and the theological ideas uh, are both are both unsettled by putting them together. That's what I'm interested in in my in my own private practice. Yeah, I mean, I think in certain cases theology can be an artistic endeavor, 
you know, not to make too much of the metaphor, but can you paint a picture, give us a specific example of what that's meant for uh, your work? So one is like, I feel like my practice has coalesced around the ICIS, actually. So like a lot okay. of my current work is this. There's a kind of clear trajectory that has brought me here to doing this kind of work. There's a kind of logic to the progression from previous projects. But the one big project that preceded this kind of work was a kind of uh, master project that I've been working on for, for years and years. Um, uh, we are in version number two of the Marcel Mauss Hermeneutical Think Tank. The acronym is MMHTT. Marcel Mauss Hermeneutical Think Tank is also a mouthful, Matt. I, um, so there's there's a pattern here to... Uh, to creating um, complicated names, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but at the at mmhtt.com, uh, all your listeners could go visit, and maybe it's it's better for them to dig into that rather than me try to describe it. But I'll link to that because I hooked around on there, and it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, it's a site that operates as a work of art itself um, and is patterned after a rhizome of sort. There's ways of kind of maneuvering through it, making choices as to the sequence of things that you experience as you work your way through it. It's funny and absurd and quite theological, philosophical um, in its content. We have gotten so used to working together, I think, Brent, right? I mean, that we are kind of like a band. I was in a punk band when I was like 16, 14, and I haven't been in so many bands since then, but now I feel that I'm once again in a band, but, and, and we do a lot of improvisation. So we're quite, quite used to this, but we're also used to keeping track of time since at our convulsions, as we call our seminars, there is a time limit of 10 minutes. So after 10 minutes, uh, two uh, new random artifacts show up and then something happens and you will need to rethink whatever you thought and you'll need to start talking about something else. And so I feel we should bring in a new thingy, a new artifact, which I think is one of our colleagues. Isn't that so, Matt? Or am I being a police with time here? I mean, you're being a little bit disciplinary, but I, I don't mind. I, I'll let you discipline me anytime. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm curious. I didn't know you were in a punk band when you were a kid. What was the name of the band? It was actually it was a Swedish punk band, but it was we can translate easily the name because it was the Rubber Band. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I was also in a punk band for a time. Uh, we were called Boss Deference, which you know you can Google that if you want to. But yeah, we were like legit punk. You know, like we stole all our equipment. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, and we just borrowed it from the school. All our songs were, you know, 30 seconds long. We now have entering the ring, Mr. Jeremy Biles. Jeremy is a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, is a Bataille and Surrealist specialist and scholar. He is our official Dean of Anal Studies in the International Congress for Inquithin Studies. My name is Jeremy Biles. I'm working out of the Chicago Bureau of the International Congress for Inquithin Studies. My uh, title in this group is Dean of Anal Studies. 
my interest in this group has to do with a kind of ongoing abiding interest in the relations between surrealism and religion. Surrealism is a longstanding kind of scholarly interest of mine, but also has really become uh, part of a practice of life. And I see the ICS as a kind of extension or part of that. Uh, for me, it's really a chance to try and establish these kind of links between uh, religion and surrealism, a way of interrogating those and also in some ways elaborating them, extending them, really to examine what I think of as the infrathin relations between these two things, surrealism and the sacred. We've used that word several times, infrathin, and I had to look it up to see what it means. And frankly, I can't even remember. So can you remind me of what that indicates? So uh, it's a term that derives from Marcel Duchamp, affiliated with the Surrealists. Uh, he didn't exactly define it, I believe. And uh, Petra and Brent, please jump in if you think I'm misrepresenting the situation here. I don't think he really defined the term infrathin. He gave us examples of what he meant by the infrathin. So he talked about the lingering smoke of a pipe in the air so that you're kind of inhaling the kind of uh, lingering scent of pipe smoke. He talked about the warmth of a chair after someone who has been sitting in it has uh, gotten up from the chair. So the, that lingering warmth is the uh, the infrathin or example of the infrathin. And so I think one of the things that's kind of motivated our investigations here is the kind of resonance or similarity between, you know, the, the many similarities between religion on the one hand and surrealism on the other. They seem to be kind of infrathin um, versions of each other, or maybe it's even right to say that the infrathin lingering of religion continues through surrealism, something like that. I just feel that I want to add, I, I mean, I, I know that the Dean of Anal Studies is, of course, uh, an expert on these issues, but I, I just want to underline that that Duchamp was, he refused to define because it is precisely something that is uh, not definable. I mean, we say the infrathin, I mean, that is also how it is used in, in uh, art theory to the extent that it is used. But Duchamp stresses that it is it's a description of a something which means that it's not a noun, which means that you cannot nail it down. And for us, I think that that has been, it relates closely to, to practice, to thinking as practice. Yeah. Uh, Could you say it's kind of what think. appears between terms, I suppose, or between an object and the idea of an object or, or something like this? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm kind of spitballing here, frankly. Plenty of people have offered definitions. Plenty of Duchamp scholars have offered definitions of it, but the hesitancy on his part, I, I think my interpretation would be that the definition would be reductive mm -hmm. and therefore it is about enacting it, right? Like it's about doing it rather than defining it as an object. Yeah. I also have a kind of vague understanding that there's some kind of relationship here between surrealism as such and psychoanalysis. How, how does that factor in, if at all, to the work of the ICIS. Okay, so uh, psychoanalysis forms an important background for surrealism. The early surrealist Andre Breton and company, so classic, you know, if we can want to use that term, surrealism, uh, with Andre Breton, the uh, founder of surrealism, the main spokesperson of surrealism, uh, they were enthusiastic readers of Sigmund Freud, and a lot of their techniques and ideas derive from the discourse of psychoanalysis, although I think it's important to stress for them, it was not precisely a kind of tool or set of techniques for therapy. It was not a therapeutic mechanism. They perverted psychoanalysis. I'd say it's a kind of critical perversion of psychoanalysis toward the uh, ends of psychic 
liberation and the transformation of society. So whereas uh, Sigmund Freud was interested in reducing the suffering of his patients and helping them better integrate into a kind of meaningful social life, for the surrealists, it was all about disruption. They wanted to take tools from psychoanalysis and turn them toward this kind of project of accessing the unconscious in order to liberate erotic desires, imagination, and thereby uh, transform everyday life. So they talked about the revolution of everyday life and psychoanalysis offered techniques for that, but they perverted them toward that end. And so insofar as it informs psychoanalysis, insofar as psychoanalysis informs surrealism, I think it also is one stimulant for our project here with the ICIS. Although we are by no means, I want to make clear, you know, orthodox Freudians or not all of us, I think, even particularly care for psychoanalysis. So uh, that's another place where this non-substantive idea of the infrathin comes in. It allows for real kind of differences among the folks in the ICIS. There's a lot of, I think, heterogeneity of thought within our uh, quadrant of the four core ICIS members. Yeah, and I guess whereas psychoanalysis is embedded kind of therapeutic results of some kind, that's not what's going on here. Is from taking it from what you're saying, although there does seem to be possibility of a kind of medicinal quality or transformative quality of some kind, right? So there's some kind of effect being wrought here. Maybe it's inappropriate to to ask about it in in a general sense, but for you personally, what is that sort of um, operation? What are you after? by participating right. in, the, in that operation. Right, so uh, I'm deeply invested in psychoanalysis and I saw a therapist for close to a decade before he suddenly and unexpectedly died, which was a uh, you know an interesting and sad thing in its own right. But he asked me the first day that I saw him, what are you expecting to get out of this? And I just said, total metamorphosis. There isn't a telos, there isn't a particular end. It's about shuffling the deck. It's an experiment. It's to see where things go. So there is a pretty well-known psychoanalyst who practices, of course, out of Brooklyn, New York. Uh, her name is Jameson Webster. And she once said something like, psychoanalysis is for people who want to undergo the adventure of psychoanalysis. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure. I don't know that I'm getting the quote exactly right, but it was something to that effect. And I really try and embrace that as a way of thinking about psychoanalysis. So I have an almost kind of visceral um, dislike of the term therapy for various reasons. So I sometimes think of surrealism or even of a kind of surrealist reading of psychoanalysis as counter therapy. So I think when we hold our group seminars or convulsions, as we call them, there might be in some sense a therapeutic aspect to it, but it's not about trying to integrate within the norms of society as it currently is. It's about interrogating and possibly maybe upsetting those norms. Right. Not necessarily about adapting, but becoming maladapted. Yeah. As we read in that statement that, that Brent uh, just read for us, you know, the, uh, a kind of malpractice perhaps. And if I may make a quick comment, you know, we were just noting that uh, there might be, uh, that there are in fact different perspectives uh, within the ICIS. I wouldn't mix the metaphor of uh, excrement with being. For me, it's the poop that undoes being. So there's one little difference I would register. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excrement uh, affirmative. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> I feel like that, I feel like that needs to sure. be uh, unpacked. 
and maybe we can do that. Um, maybe you can find a way to kind of squeeze that in. Or, um, squeeze it out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, whichever direction is fine. Welcome Dan, Dan Seidel. He is the chief curator of non-existent projects for the International Congress for Infrathin Studies. He is our dark and brooding presence, our shadow presence, our beloved brooding presence. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, it's good to be here. I could tell that you were very pleased that you got your recently revised title correct. <laughs> I, it's a promotion. Ah, I see. Uh, yeah, so uh, welcome. Do you want to briefly introduce yourself for people who, who don't know who you are? Maybe say something about the kind of things you are interested slash work on um, and how that overlaps with your responsibilities as the curator of non-existent projects for the ICIS. For sure. Uh, I'm originally trained as an art historian and had a career um, as a professor of modern contemporary art history and theory, as well as a 11-year um, career as a chief curator of a university art museum in the US. My work has always been interested in the intersections between art and religion and uh, faith and what's visible and what is invisible, ineffable, and how art negotiates those, um, those boundaries. And I'm working on a theology dissertation now under the direction of Catherine Keller and Petra Carlson. And I am uh, working on developing a curatorial theology, looking at the museum as a way to, uh, to display theology in a different way. So this project that we've been engaged in is something that helps me think through uh, the various questions that I have in the work that I do. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm really curious to hear more about what your dissertation is is going to look like. How's that going, by the way? It's going well. I look forward to graduating in the spring semester. Fantastic. Yeah, well, just as an aside, I'd love to talk to you on your own about the work that you're doing. Sounds good <laughs> if I can shake myself free of these three other folks. <laughs> In one uh, supervision that we had, I was invited to dance uh, flat in, in uh, Stockholm. Uh, and the dissertation was presented as an art exhibition so that I would walk around the room uh, and see the different chapters, which included like quotations and images. And, and so we were like moving between rooms within the room. I actually do believe that there will be a way for Dan to enact the curatorial space in the book. Right. I can see the challenges of presenting that. Uh, if it's not simply textually based, you mentioned in there a sort of interest in the ineffable. I'm curious about that in relation to surrealism in general. How would you describe the relation between religious ineffability and a more general mysticism or coming from a, an artistic place or, or otherwise? 
I would probably maybe 10 years ago, I would have a particular way of distinguishing them, but I don't think I can distinguish them now. And so I'm interested in allowing that question of the ineffable as something that's non-existent. I like very much um, how Deleuze wants to define theology as a uh, science of non-existing entities and to explore just explore the possibility of art offering and artistic practices, creative practices offering a way into um, an experience that that strains language, but responds deeply to to our desire. And I find that 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 is something that I'm quite attracted to. And uh, the question of the experimental practice of theology or its potential to be able to operate in realms like conceptual art. And so utilizing the history of the avant-garde or the history of modern contemporary art as a way to think about different ways that theology can be installed or looked at or approached that can allow it to touch on certain aspects of experience that artistic practice has been doing at least since uh, the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah, I know in Petra's work, she leverages Russian constructivism in an interesting theological way. And this group centers around surrealism. And I'm not an art person per se. I mean, I certainly have an appreciation for it and know a few things, but are there other forms of art that you see as potentially rich resources for kind of theological thinking or production? I find any any work of art potential for it because it's less about the, for me, it's less about the the content or the iconography or it's, um, yeah, it's content and more about its form and its structure. So in the work that I'm doing, I'm right now, I'm interested in the work of Marcel Duchamp, but I'm also interested in the Ghent altarpiece, uh, the Shroud of Turin, material artifacts that are doing different things and thinking about them in relationship to the apparatus that makes them visible or makes them experiential or generates ways for speech and discourse to um, to occur. So it's less about isolating a particular artwork as somehow uniquely equipped in its own self to um, to reveal or to help me think theologically, but the kind of structure that it incorporates. So incorporating a context, a certain kind of apparatus that that isn't just isolated in that artifact, but how that artifact works in a kind of um, kind of circuitry or an economy or a relationship with other concepts and aspects. And that's my and that's my interest in the museum as an exhibition space and an apparatus that makes artifacts work in particular ways. And so my experiment, my way of thinking about it is what happens if we dislodge theology from its display apparatus, it's functioning in a church or in the academy and display it in a, in a museum. And so it just opens up questions for me in terms of what is a museum experience or a gallery experience as we move through space and how might theology work in those ways? Yeah, that's fascinating. Love it. You mentioned Deleuze in there and how he defines in, in a footnote, I think, uh, theology is the study of non-existing objects. And then a large, it can be argued, a large uh, interest, of, an important interest of Deleuze's is the philosophy as the creation of concepts. 
kind of holding those two things together, is it fair uh, to think about Deleuze as a theologian? Yeah, under certain circumstances. I mean, I think I'm thinking about, for example, I'm doing a lot of thinking about Marcel Duchamp and his urinal. And so under certain circumstances, the urinal becomes a work of art, but those circumstances can shift. And then it's just a urinal that you pee in. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that aspect where theology might be able to, under certain circumstances, exhibit it in a particular way, maybe under a particular lighting or um, hung on a wall or in relationship to other artifacts. It can operate as theology. And then in other situations, it doesn't. And so I'm interested in that aspect of how that mechanism operates and not a mystical one, not a kind of alchemical one, but one that has to do with institutions and how they're presented and and then how the, that kind of circuitry operates. So in some ways, I'm treating theology as a, as a ready-made, like the shovels and the urinals that, um, that Duchamp produced, in which he doesn't make the objects, he puts them in different kinds of contexts. And so I'm trying to think about the ways that theology can function differently if it's put on a pedestal with a vitrine around it, or there's some lighting on it, or you move around with other works of art around it, um, how it how it behaves um, as an artifact amongst other artifacts. I think one of our bigger projects is making it difficult to ask that question, Matt, of like, is Deleuze a theologian? Is Deleuze an artist, right? Like the, the history of especially modern and contemporary art is the the gallery winds up being a, a holding ground, a, a place of action where many odd things occur that don't fit categories so neatly. So early minimalist composers often debuted their early pieces in gallery spaces in New York City. There's a way that that these things get blurry and that art has always had the the capacity to adapt and absorb a broad range of activities, a kind of multiplying effect throughout the the, the history of modern and contemporary. Um, and I wonder, I don't know if you guys back me up on this, but like that that might be a fundamental project for us is rather than narrowly defining theology or, or figuring out who fits into a kind of theological frame, rather broadening the notion of theology to say maybe all of this is, <laughs> um, to include the, the kind of artistic frame, uh, in that, that there might be generative ways of, of blurring those disciplinary lines between things. It, it sounds to me like the transgression that, that occurs in these kinds of spaces or activities is not necessarily the point but just a matter of course, as a, as a matter of method. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, I'm, I'm trained as a theologian and I'm a, I'm an ordained minister. And so, so that's kind of where I have my background, but I've always been interested in art and, and was brought up that way as well. And now after having written the books I've written, I, I also worked at, at times at the art school. So I was there yesterday with the students. And what I've learned from both this collaboration and from, well, being uh, at the art school and in the art world is that I feel that I've gotten like new glasses with which through which to view theology and the theological world and the academic theological world. Because in when approaching art or, or when dealing with art, one is always aware of the apparatus around it that is so where in this room what happens when I enter this room with me with this object 
Uh, and what does that say? And what would it say if we moved it a little to the left so that the light would hit it differently? What would that reveal? And what, what would that say? And then maybe perhaps the artist, no, 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 that doesn't work. That, that's not what I meant. No, no, look, we need to turn it around. If you start viewing, for example, an academic theological conference like that. So, so what is that? What are those rooms and what do they express? And what is knowledge in a room like that, like where you sit up front and read your paper? So what does that say about how we view theological knowledge, the truth about theology or where theology is, is heading and how is that constructed? So, so what is like the apparatus around the theological, academic theology that makes it trustworthy or that gives it status or that makes it alive. Like what is, there's some, some like Caputo quotes or <laughs> that come to life and, or Keller quotes or, you know, what are those and how does that work? And, and on what level do they like speak to the desires of the bodies of those who read? And what is that? So, so for me, reading theology as art helps me to, leave the idea of that I, when I open a theological book, uh, I follow someone's rational reasoning from, from like the first page to the last, but, but I go into a kind of performance that someone is bringing me into and asking me to join and to accept. But there's so much for me to accept and there's so much that I can also not accept. You know, we could just do it completely differently and then, you know, the divine would appear differently. The theological wisdom would appear as something else. And art helps me see the confines of theological thinking as it appears in, in our culture today. So, okay, we've been talking a while. Let's get into the uh, convulsion. <laughs> who's in Who's in charge of that? Who's going to be leading that? It's not me. I'm happy to do it. We call our seminar sessions convulsions for reasons we could get into. I mean, that's a word that comes out of surrealist theory. That's a Breton idea of what is the quote, Jeremy? Well, his term is convulsive beauty. Yeah. Okay. And so um, we use that term because the program itself, it is a, a mechanism that propels conversations forward, backward, side to side, like it's it's unpredictable. Uh, we utilize chance as a kind of center part of that the mechanism. It's become our our most regular activity and has really grown in rich ways that are beyond all of our hopes and expectations. Uh, in in drawing numbers or rolling dice, it brings up artifacts that the community has sent in, but we don't know what artifact is going to come up at a time. We always use conjoined artifacts. So we always pull two artifacts at a time through chance. So those, those artifacts were brought together, not by us, but through our chance operation. Um, because the, this is the program we utilize, I kind of see this seminar as a kind of reverse seminar at, to, compared to other seminars where in a typical sort of seminar format, there is a kind of telos. There's a there's a prescribed theme. There is a generally single specialist who is walking the attenders through that theme to at the end a a kind of prescribed knowledge that is arrived at by the end. For us, it's very much 
a kind of decentered, improvisatory processing of the juxtaposed artifacts as we go. And so uh, we kind of uh, subject ourselves to this free play of stimulations or prompts that then bring us into all sorts of uh, subjects that sometimes are quite tangential, let's say, to the center theme, but that's all kind of game. It's all like part of the part of the game we're playing as we go. Building on what Brent just said, part of the um, spirit of the uh, ICIS in general is this experimental spirit. Like we want to cultivate a real attitude of experimentation in everything that we do. And I think that extends very much to the seminars, the convulsions as well. So you earlier asked Matt about the relationship between psychoanalysis and surrealism. It's the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis, according to Freud, is free association. And free association means you say in the analytic context, the uh, the kind of, while you're lying on the couch, you say anything and everything that comes to mind without any censorship, no matter how stupid or embarrassing or trivial it might seem. So, and probably no one, in fact, ever, you know, accomplishes real free association, but we try and also cultivate that as part of our experimental uh, spirit, the spirit of free association, which then informs surrealism. It's in the background of their um, practice of automatic writing. The other thing that uh, Brent pointed out is, you know, with these artifacts, we're, we're juxtaposing artifacts and juxtaposition was an important strategy for the surrealists. That term often gets used to mean just pairing two things up and putting them side by side. But for the surrealists, the point of juxtaposition was to force together two seemingly incompatible, radically distinct or very distant elements, putting them together to see what happens then, to see what kinds of energies that kind of explosion might produce. So we're trying to, I think, uh, follow some of that uh, uh, that strategy of juxtaposition in the in the seminars as well. And so just to give a few examples, we've had uh, juxtapositions of heresy and insects. The, the one coming up is Christ and smell. And uh, we've had transcendence and worms. Intestines. Right? Intestines and transcendence. Was that it? Yeah. I think and so. The funny thing is that when we come up with them, it's just like really random. And it's just one of us just throws something out. But after the convulsion, I cannot not understand how we could not combine them before. Like, how could insects and heresy be in two different boxes in my mind? I just can't get around that now since after we had that discussion. Fascinating. I, I know we were planning on going through the practice a little bit, but we're short on time. So um, and that's fine. But Petra, you suggested in the chat that Dan read some kind of introductory text or something that you do to set up the, the convulsions, is that right? Yeah, since we invite anyone who gets some kind of urge um, when listening to this in the description of it to experience it. And uh, I think that if, if Dan, if you would read the introduction that also says something not only about the convulsions, but about the infrathin work in general. For sure, I'll do that. The infrathin seminar, the convulsion, is an ongoing series hosted by the International Congress for Infrathin Studies, featuring intimately scaled online conversation experiments. This seminar engages surrealist methods to instigate exploratory creative exchanges on topics of urgency. The Infrathin Seminar and the ICIS in general 
is an affirmative response following a prophetic critique. We believe the absence of a human response adequate to multivalent existential crises is fundamentally due to a dearth of imagination. In his book, Capitalist Realism, Mark Fisher asserts that, quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. The Infrathin seminar offers participants surrealist approaches for instigating and continuing the necessary work of reviving our collective imagination. We therefore invite you to exercise your imagination, to take risks, play, and experiment in order to perhaps glimpse possible new worlds. Thus saith the Lord. You want people to join? I mean, what if you get like 50 people coming in? That's not going to work. <laughs> Daddy Brent will handle that, I think. Because Daddy, he, Daddy Brent. He has a list of like, there is a certain number of people allowed in every time. He's a gatekeeper. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, ruthless. Uh, yeah, we try to keep these intimately scaled, as Dan's uh, Dan's careful reading just denoted. So we, yeah, like we kind of cap it at 20 because we do these at kind of weird hours because we try to include both we on the West Coast of, of the U.S. as well as the Europeans. Um, so so we, we wind up kind of naturally having a small group anyway. But yeah, we, we would just, yeah, we would just cap it at, at a certain number. I see. So the gatekeeping begins. Breton was a was a vicious gatekeeper, um, uh, excommunicating people left and right. So while while there's this kind of history of interesting tension between both total accommodation and and freedom as an ethos, but also at least in like under Breton's leadership, it was a it was a quite exclusive crowd. When we started out this project, you and me, Dan, do you remember that we started to write a list of people who were excluded from the International Congress for Infrathin Studies? We never really did anything with that list. It just kind of exists secretly. But but what we have done is that at our last convulsion, we gave an honorary doctorate to uh, a Swede, honorary doctor of uh, surrealist theology now, after that convulsion, he was an actor, or he is an actor, actor, he's still alive, he's 94 years old, and he was the last Swede to be convicted of heresy for a joke uh, that he made on the radio, and we wanted to honor that because he was pushing uh, borders in a way that we appreciated. Has this gentleman been notified of his um, award? Not yet. We, I have this golden frame with a diploma and, of course, the motivation. And I'm going over to his house to give it to him because I, I, I do think that he will be feel honored. At least I hope so. Fantastic. I can't wait to hear how that how that goes and what that discussion sounds like. So there's been so many um, little side paths and other things we could talk about. Um, I feel like we've gotten a strong sense for uh, what the ICIS is, is all about. Is there anything that any of you want to add at the end here? All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you all for sharing about your theory, practice, the things that you're up to. I think it's very interesting. Well, what should people do if they want to uh, know more, get involved, et cetera? We have a, a provisional website that is useless other than to join our mailing list. So uh, the, the website is being constructed, but you can find us at infrathincongress.org and join our mailing list there, and you will be notified 
of uh, upcoming events that we'll be doing as, uh, and especially the Infrathin seminar sessions. We do these once a month and would love any of your listeners to, to join us. It would be great to, to see some war, war machine folks out uh, to one of these. If you pass our secret background checks. Which also includes gaping of some kind. Absolutely. TBD. And kindness. Kindness also. Well, sure. They go hand in hand. Was there a moment where where either Petra or somebody described how that manifesto was created? She did mention that it was a collective effort. It, it's specifically an exquisite corpse produced thing, which which might be interesting for your listeners to to hear a bit about. I think I did say that. If it's important for people to understand what exquisite corpse is, we can talk about it now. I see Dan nodding, so I'm going to go with yes. Who, who wants to say something about exquisite oh, corpse? Brent. I interrupted Brent. I think he can explain. Um, okay, so exquisite corpse is a really wonderful and maybe one of the most famous methods that the Surrealists developed. It's essentially an aleatoric process wherein chance is a, is a kind of fundamental element, but only revealed at the end. So the Surrealists developed or kind of offered this as a method for both producing text-based as well as image-based works that are collectively done in isolation. And here's, here's what I mean by that. So the first person makes a drawing or does a bit of, of writing in isolation from the group. That text or drawing is then given to the next person but the only thing that the next person who will be contributing to this project uh, has at their disposal is a, a slight remainder of the previous iteration. So back in Paris, when they were, were doing this, generally would fold the paper so that only the final line of text or so was visible to the next contributor, or if it, in the case of a drawing, a few lines kind of remain, they they go over the fold, right? And so the, the next person who's contributing, they can draw or write anything they want to. However, the prompt is they have to include the bit of remainder from the previous contribution. And so as a drawer, I would then have to include to sort of uh, improvise on the little bit of drawing that is visible to me from the previous drawing. And so this, this kind of progressive operation occurs where each contributor is mostly blind to the previous iteration, and then the entirety of it is revealed at the end. And so it's a, it's a process that is, is really, really rich and wild to be a part of because there's a, a kind of a, an unforeseeable whole uh, develops by the end. It's unforeseeable. It's full of surprises, interesting patterns, interesting things carry over that that are like psychically transferred because it's this all was composed basically blind to the whole. Um, so our manifesto was produced as an exquisite corpse. Um, and so I think Dan was maybe the first person who, who did some writing. Uh, the final line of his bit of writing was then sent to the next person. And so we all contributed our own ideas, our own desires, our energies, our whatever, but had to incorporate that that previous thing. So it's very much a kind of improvisational kind of reaction to what 
has been received and then is then transferred to the next person to to do it. So it's a it's a, a kind of interesting kind of framing for this document that that's important in the reading of the document. Well, I love the way that that it turned out. There's some strong imagery in here that I I love. You guys should do more of this. I've loved being experimental with you in this way because largely by accident, the podcast medium has become what I work with. So this has been fun in terms of trying something different. I think it's really sort of on brand for what you guys are doing. So. Yeah, we've, we've loved that you pitched this idea and um, it was fun. I mean, part of part of what we're, we are excited about is the ways that our kind of experimental <clears throat> has also fostered other kind of creative um, operations and those who are in our orbit or like our constellation of, of people. So, so this is fun that you, you pitched this to us. We were excited to, to read it. Awesome. Actually, this, uh, the way that we've been talking today with people entering the room, I, I guess it resembles a kind of exquisite corpse. And, and the, the beautiful part of that, or one beautiful part of that is that that's also how we all got started. It was when Dan Seidel had viewed Ted Jones's, the, this uh, Afro-surrealist artist from the 60s. He did, uh, he, he let this exquisite corpse of pile of paper uh, travel around for what's it 30 years or 20 years or something uh, around to 120 different people and then it was exhibited and uh, Dan just uh, posted it on Facebook a, a photo of it and I just said we should do theology like that uh, and Brent said yes and then uh, Jeremy came along and it was like so so that's kind of and that's also how, why we then started uh, writing the manifesto as we did but but it's really been running through everything we've been doing at times I think not so consciously but yeah. Well, thanks for sharing the origin story of the band. It's important mm -hmm. background. <laughs> uh, but thanks again. I really appreciate your, your your time. I think this was a lot of fun for me. Thank you, Matt. This is a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks to the ICIS, Petra, Dan, Brent, and Jeremy. Thank you for listening. Dan, I believe, is going to be joining us later in the month to talk about his dissertation on curatorial theology. So that'll be interesting. We have a Patreon, so if you'd like to support what we're doing in that way, it's appreciated. And I'll link to that in the show notes. And that's it. So see you next time.